Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, I'm going to put my Joe voice on for this. Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Cinematic Universe, the podcast all about comic book movies. I'm your host, James Hunt, and joining me today is no one, because I'm cutting together a special episode of the podcast out of interviews I did with the Luke Cage cast a couple of weeks ago. Just in case you haven't finished, or for that matter, started the series, don't worry, like, this is all spoiler-free. Um, I had my microphone pointed away from me, so rather than let you hear my badly edited mumbling, I'm going to introduce the questions using a professional radio voice before you hear from the interviewees. Uh, you might hear my sycophantic acknowledgements and laughs and stuff, so just try to filter that out. Um, I was just trying to make it clear I am listening instead of staring at my notebook. Uh, for reference, you'll be hearing from Mahashala Ali, who played Cottonmouth, Simone Missick, who plays Misty Knight, Chio Hadari Koka, who is the showrunner, and of course, Mike Coulter, who played Luke Cage. And finally, just before we get started, I'd like to thank Den of Geek for getting me into the junket. Uh, you can read the full versions of these interviews on the UK website alongside my episode-by-episode write-ups, which I'm plodding through on a daily basis and which, frankly, are killing me. My first interview was with Mahashala Ali, who plays Cottonmouth. Now, I'd seen a few episodes by this point, and I was so intimidated by his portrayal of the character that I kept calling him Stokes because I knew the character didn't like being called Cottonmouth. So that's the level of professionalism you're dealing with here. Uh, I started out by asking him what he thought the extent of Stokes' ambition was. I, I think he's exploring. I think he's in a... I, I, I believe Cottonmouth is in... When he meets Luke Cage, I think he's kind of in a position where he is kind of stretching his wings a little bit and exploring mm-hmm. his capacity as as a person who is who really finds himself in a position of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't I don't I don't think he necessarily has a clear vision of what he wants to accomplish. Yeah. Um but I but in some ways that's shaped by his his cousin Mariah who begins to kind of try to steer him into going completely legitimate in, in, in some ways. And so I think that there quickly becomes a little bit of friction as to how he should go about running his business and therefore also what it is that he would look to accomplish in the end. And acknowledging that the portrait of Biggie uh, that he has in his office plays a role in this, I asked if he was inspired by the East Coast hip-hop culture in his portrayal of the character. It sounds weird. I think I was more inspired by by the city, by New York City, mm-hmm. by Harlem. And so I grew up in California. So yeah. I grew up, obviously, 3,000 miles away. But my father was a New Yorker, okay. and he lived um, a few miles up from Harlem. So from a very early age, I'm talking like 12, mm-hmm. I would take the train when I was visiting him in the summer. I would go down into Harlem and... 
Harlem is not this way anymore. Harlem is still amazing, but when I was growing up, mm-hmm. Harlem was still very much the mecca of black culture. And so for a kid coming from California and and hanging out in Harlem, I was just so inspired by and there was this aspirational feeling that you would get in spending time in Harlem. So you'd have this whole range of characters and people and and um and just uh experiences uh, that were really specific to yeah. to Harlem. So to get to play someone who's in some capacity the prince or the king of Harlem, that meant something to me yeah. uh, deep within my bones. And so I was inspired by that energy um, that I knew to be a very real thing in Harlem yeah. and allowed the writing to do a lot of that work and took my cues from that. Um, but so, so there was the city in and of itself and, and the neighborhood uh, in and of itself. But there's also the aspect of, of of music, which is a very real thing in all of my work that I try to incorporate in terms of creating a a, a soundtrack for these characters that that kind of is a match for the energy of their journey, mm-hmm. um, and also where that character may be at on that specific day. Um, stuff that they would specifically listen to, um, things that fit within the years of that character's experience and that don't necessarily go beyond. Yeah. Um, so the combination of, of, of the city itself and, and music, and music is very much a, a part of, of and a character in the series. And lastly, knowing Marvel's tendency is to kill villains, I asked whether he had any reservations about taking the role and if he might like to hold out for one where, you know, he could come back for a second series. I think you have to look at where you are in in your career and what it is that you want. And um, I was all up for this one shot. I really was. Um, If if anything, it gave me a certain energy to work to give it all that I had Mm -hmm. to this character because, you know, you know... (laughs) The villains often don't make it to season two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's just the reality of it. Um, you know, it, maybe I'll be able to come back as something else in mm-hmm. the future or what have you. Um, maybe be on the good side at some point. But um, but no, it didn't make me hesitant. If anything, it actually gave me a lot of energy to go as far as I could with this character because I knew this was this was my shot to make to make my contribution and have that that mm-hmm. one experience. My next interview was with Simone Missick, who, now I've finished the series, I can honestly say made me care more about Misty Knight than any comic I've ever read with her in it. Um, Even if she doesn't have the metal arm, which, you know, not a huge spoiler to say that doesn't happen. Uh, I asked about Misty's position as a character from Harlem who went into law enforcement and what she thinks drove her to do that rather than sort of succumb to the various negative influences around her. I think that Misty became a cop because she was disheartened by the way that she saw her community being policed. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a special kind of human being to look at a problem and say, you know what, I'm going to be a part of the solution. Um, I know that I'm very dissatisfied with the way that I see law enforcement in my community, but I didn't go off and become a cop. (laughs) You know, I went off and became an actor who played a cop on TV. Mm -hmm. So uh, Misty, I think, is not uh, morally perfect, but I think she feels such a responsibility to her community and for the people who see 
she's grown up around and the people who she's watched die and not get justice served, that that is what fuels her. Um, but it, there is, with everyone, there's lightness and there's darkness and she has her moments. And just because I couldn't ignore it, I asked how she approached the unavoidable political aspect of being a black woman playing a police officer in New York. I have an, an aunt who was a detective in D.C. for over 25 years. Mm-hmm. And it always, I always wondered how she was able to do that and why she chose that profession. And D.C. is a predominantly black city, as is Harlem, is a predominantly yeah. black borough. Um, but it's still hard to be a cop who is responsible to uphold the laws of the state and then still be a human being who identifies with her community. And that was kind of always in the back of my mind of what that that dichotomy is. You know, you are working within the system to change the system, mm-hmm. um, but you are still in the system. And so I think, um, that was always a part of it and that's always that that internal struggle and that internal thought process especially for Simone the human being who watches you know police officers in the media and in the news and mm-hmm. in front of her face and think that why did you do that you know so I think it's it's hard to to separate that but that is our job as actors yeah And now I'm a big New York nerd, so you're going to hear a lot about Harlem from me in these interviews, and I apologise for that in advance. It's just who I am. Uh, I asked Simone how she felt about the almost romanticised view of Harlem and how it meets the show's theme of gentrification. It was something that we definitely talked about on set. You know, Harlem does not look like the Harlem from five or ten years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And for better or for worse, that is not what's necessarily portrayed in the in the show and I think that it's because you know you watch movies like or you watch Sex and the City and people always thought that is not the New York that I know (laughs) (laughs) and yet it was told from these women's perspectives where yes they might go to a, a bar and there might be Asian women and black men and Latino men in the room, but they're only seeing their white girlfriends Mm -hmm. and the white guys that come up to them because that's the way the story is told. And so with Luke Cage, it's similar. You know, the barbershop might not have a lot of uh, Asian and and white gay couples coming in and, you know, getting their hair cut because it's a black barbershop Mm -hmm. and the club, you know, it's got people of color, but it's owned by a black guy who's a gangster. So that will be the constituency. So it's interesting that the the way that the story is told is definitely told from a more, uh, a a smaller perspective of what Harlem is today. But I think that we also do a good job of addressing that gentrification that's going on and the people that are, you know, who've been living in that community for generations who are being pushed out of their homes because they're being outpriced and, you know, that their neighborhood is changing and not for the good. I mean, yes, it's nice to have a Starbucks, but when the Starbucks is putting, you know, the small coffee shop out of business, is it really the best thing? Mm-hmm. Now, no disrespect to the others, but Chio Coco was my favorite interview of the bunch. Uh, I just could have talked all day to him. Like, he's a kind of Kevin Smith-style motor mouth anyway, but he really knows his comic stuff and as a Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Ned, I hugely respect that. Um, I, like, I hadn't even sat down before he started talking to me about comics, so... Uh, I just wanted to share this little snippet where he references some of his favorite stories, so you can go and pick them up. I mean, they're all they're all basically essential reading, so yeah, there's no no problem with any of them. On one hand, being a geek, I want to tell the best, you know, comic book story possible yeah. because you know, as someone who came up with on, you know, Chris Claremont and Frank Miller, um, like particularly like. You know, the Wolverine limited series, um, you know, the four issue limited series back in the day, in the yeah. early 80s, huge influence on me, as well as stuff like, um, you know, God Loves and Man Kills, that graphic novel, or even um, even later stuff from the 80s, like um, Craven's Last Hunt, which is probably like my favorite Spider Man like story. Yeah. Like, or even like John Byrne's uh, first 12 issues of Alpha Flight, in terms of like that, that's, that was one of the biggest influences on, on, on the twist we have in episode seven. Mm-hmm. was the fact that you could do that. Because I just remember how that just rocked my world <laughs> when I read it, you know, back in the day. You know, that's the whole thing is that people sometimes say that, oh, well, because it's comic books, it can't be dramatic. I'm like, well, if you're a long-term reader of comics, <laughs> yeah. you know darn well that, like, um, some of the best storytelling comes from this. Now, even though he's into comics, I'd seen a lot of the actors say they were told to avoid the source material. So I asked if that was down to him and what the thinking behind that was. No. No. <laughs> I mean, you, you know what it is? It's that sometimes you, you can become very literal. Mm-hmm. And when you become literal, it basically can tie you so close to a property that you have the inability to step back and change things because... You know, when you step out of one medium into another, it changes. Yeah. When you step out of comic books and then try to do a live action version, it changes. You're like just by nature, what you do, it changes. Mm-hmm. So, a perfect example is like because um, I'm also a huge J.K. Rowling fan, so I like I, I've read all the Harry Potter books in addition to like watching the movies. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice about the first two, the first two movies that Chris Columbus did, he was so he was almost so afraid to not change anything that he literally filmed word for word, dialogue for dialogue, <laughs> everything from the first two books. Mm-hmm. And the fans were like, come on. So 
when Alfonso Cuaron really took over the third movie and he got a little looser with it and there was this kind of like a you know from the way that the, the kids from Hogwarts were like because I, I also went to a prep school you know like wore their ties a little loose and, <laughs> and the, it really felt lived in mm-hmm. and he took little not departures but just kind of just like let it breathe a little bit that's really when the Harry Potter movies took off mm-hmm. and I think that that was the thing with this was that to stay really close to the source material but at the same time you know let it breathe I mean, and, and take some chances and because the audience doesn't want to see a direct translation they think they want a direct translation <laughs> yeah. but if you give them a direct translation they'll call it stiff and wooden and then they'll go back so you, you gotta kind of mix it up a little bit and on a more serious topic, I asked about the show's political overtones and whether he set out to write about them or when he got caught of Luke Cage or whether he just found it like impossible to avoid given the circumstances and character. Well, here's the thing. It's like, if you're a black person in America, it's really hard to avoid, no matter what you do, being black. And what I mean by that is that, like, you know, the reality that you face of the cultural history regardless of whether or not you talk about it, is there. Mm-hmm. So my whole thing was that I wanted Luke Cage to very much be an African-American superhero rather than a superhero that happens to be black. Right. I really felt that it was important to give him a certain cultural grounding, but also show that that grounding doesn't necessarily make him an obtuse character or a one-sided character. Mm-hmm. I wanted to show that, you could, that he could be literary. I wanted to show that he could be sensitive. I wanted to show that he could be funny. In addition to being brawny and kicking a lot of ass, I wanted to really kind of show the kind of nuance that you rarely see. Um, well, not, it's not so rare anymore because there's so many interesting stories that take place mm-hmm. in the modern-day black experience, whether it's Queen Sugar, whether it's Atlanta, whether it's, um, you know, some of the other shows that are, that are coming out now, Insecure. There are, this is kind of a renaissance to show these different sides because blackness isn't one thing. It's a lot of different aspects, and so it's just like... I kind of wanted to show that diversity. I mean, you know, here's the thing. It's like, I mean, the fact that, like, you know, um, Guy Ritchie is a different writer-director than Julian Fellows. Or, <laughs> or, or, you know what I'm saying? But they're, yeah, still, yeah. they're still British. Mm-hmm. There's nuance. You can't really... And so that's the thing. What happens sometimes when you have black filmmakers, black storytelling, is that they try to make it all, all oh, this is the black. Yeah. As opposed to it being even within that nuance and the different types of storytelling. I mean, that I, I, I wanted this to be similarly diverse in terms of the different complexities of black America in this show. But then when you had superpowers to that, then, oh my God, what the hell is this shit? <laughs> and finally, I got to talk to Mike Coulter, who's the big guy himself. And I literally do mean big here because I got into a lift with him and I didn't notice he was in there until he spoke because he's a full head and shoulders taller than me. Um... I literally thought it was a wall, like you have no idea how huge he is. As ever, I couldn't help asking about his personal experiences of Harlem. Well, I lived, I lived in Harlem for five or six years, and we actually, actually lived like literally two, three blocks from where we shot. I could see my old apartment okay. from, from our, our location, our, on, um, on location mm-hmm. on Lenox Avenue, um, otherwise known as Malcolm X Boulevard. Yeah, yeah. Um, Harlem was going through a gentrification process when I was living there and I could see that happening slowly and um, you know the way I interpret it is you know forget about the fact that there's a Whole Foods market being built on the 125th Street now and 124th between 124th and 125th on Linux mm-hmm. forget the fact that there's more than 
there's two Starbucks, maybe a third now somewhere there, that there's multiple restaurants, that there is this kind of what feels like a wave of 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 progression that's going in a certain direction and changing Harlem at its core. The other parts are still there. You still have Cotton Club. You still have the Apollo Theater. You still have, you know, uh, Marcus Garvey Park. You still have the same streets are still the same streets. Um, it, it, ultimately, what you just have is a, a is, is Harlem is kind of timeless, sort of timeless. So the Harlem that I think we have, or minus those certain glaring differences, I think we I think we we we're put in a situation where it is modern, but it seems timeless because. Um, while we have the same current issues that are that are going on in our in our series, we also pay homage to some of the black exploitation, some of the feel yeah. of the of the of the old earlier versions of Luke Cage. And I, I you know, asked him to touch on the political dimension of the show and how he felt about playing someone who, one way or another, is going to become a black icon. I think it's fair to say. Um, it's timing. Timing is everything. Yeah. If we were planning to make it a political show would probably would have fallen flat on its face we would have never gotten that actual um that effect wouldn't have happened you know mm-hmm. it's just you know you can call it dumb luck you know fortunate you don't know how to like yeah. how to describe what's happened when we were de- dealing with the series we started shooting in september of last year and we wrapped sometime in march we there were you know things were bubbling up you know as far as political arena there was there were things happening around that people were, were having you know they were they were um you know having rioting because of you know the Eric Garner the, you know I can't breathe that was yeah. one of the things that happened um you know in New York City uh, two officers you know being gunned down who were sitting in their patrol cars they had um another another incident um that happened um I can't recall exactly which one of um that happened some shortly around the same time, but it was there were small things and obviously small but but in number small things happening yeah. now that the series is about to air between now and like the last month i mean even today yesterday the day before yesterday mm-hmm. you know things are happening I'm reading all the time, and you go i, I wish it wasn't the case I, I would rather much rather have a well received series that was just what it was and and wouldn't be so politicized because at it's at the it's at the um expense of 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 lives i mean i don't know i don't know how much our series will change society maybe yeah. the conversations will become more heated maybe they'll become more politicized maybe there be more people will chime in but um but it it is a, it is a product of its time and lastly i asked what it was like to play a character who's something of an unconventional boy scout like just by virtue of being black it's nice you know after playing like you know Lamont Bishop for a few, you know, some several years. It's mm-hmm. nice to play a good character because you know I was discussing this with someone else, um, uh, one of your colleagues, I'm sure, and it's about global perception. You know, global perception is that you know Americans we are creating and exporting what is our best export. It's entertainment, mm-hmm. and so, but we have a big responsibility, and that is to portray people in a three dimensional and fulfilling and um, real way and not put cliches and stereotypes on screen at all times. And that's your lot. Thanks for listening. Um, there are some more questions and transcripts available for all of these interviews at the UK Den of Geeks site. Uh, in case you're wondering, we are planning to do a Luke Cage episode before too long. Uh, we've just all got to have a chance to finish the series first. 
Uh, other than that, Cinematic Universe will be back soon with our X-Men episode in a week or so. Goodbye.